The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyot, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me there is the hype buster, Mr. Herb Greenford. Herb, it's been a while since you and I did this, but for those who are not familiar with you, haven't seen you in the media over many years, quick intro on you, your background, what you've done throughout your career, what are you doing currently? Oh, I have, I've done a lot, but, I, I, but whenever I watch you, I just don't know how you do what you do. That's the part that has me confused because I always thought I did it. I'm a very fucked up individual. Well, I, I'm bitter. I've come to, I've come to realize that. I've come you to admit realize it, I mean, I, of course, I'm in the school that thinks you can get by without saying how fucked up you are, but, uh, but that's here and there. Look, I'm, I, I've been around for a long time. I think many people listening probably know who I am. And if they don't, they probably wonder who is this old guy. But I was there in the earlier days. I was there through other bubbles as a newspaper columnist, writing daily news, newspaper columns in San Francisco for 10 years where I was doing six days a week, morphed over to the internet in 1998 when street.com started with street.com. was there for about six years or so. In the early days, Jim Cramer and the crew, one of the great, I think, great places where a lot of great talent was spawned back in that day. I moved over to Market Watch, and then, you know, I've been a CNBC contributor for forever, it seems like, for many years. It used to be on, have a, a regular Jim Cramer had me on doing a regular thing with him once a week for the first year of his show, went on to Fast Money, where I did a regular thing there once a week where I would go up against the guys where they would generally punch me out. And and then I, you know, I've done, I've had a few investment research firms, short bias that I've done. Most of my career, most of my, prof- much of my professional career has been raising red flags, pointing out what might go wrong in the market. More recently, two years ago, I joined Empire Financial Research, where I do it's interesting. I still, I do long bias reports. I, I made a change behind the paywall where I do long bias reports, but I also write the kind of things I used to write for Empire, but also on my own Substack where I have Herb on the street. And I've also launched uh, a red flags alert, which I've been doing more recently and something that I'm just, you know, kicking tires on. So I've done, I've done a lot. I've, I've covered almost every industry. Throughout my career, working in, you know, cities from San Francisco, Chicago, Minneapolis, St. Paul, New York, you know, just and having lived many places. So that's me in a nutshell. So I think you and I would probably agree that there are a lot of red flags now waving, but yeah, they've been increasing in magnitude and frequency. 
I'd say the last several months. Just start top down and then we'll get into some kind of individual sure. uh, things you're noting. Where are we in terms of market movement here? I mean, the, the narrative seems to very quickly be shifting that recession coming next year. And the reality is nobody cared about the red flag of the yield curve inversion until stocks started going down. Well, first, let me make it clear that I'm not a macro guy. I've never been a macro guy. I put my toe in macro every now and then. I talk about the markets, obviously, and I have. But I want to make that really clear. I don't pay attention to every twist and turn. I can't. It's just not who I am. That said, I have some thoughts on this. One of my thoughts is that going back at least a year and a half, everybody said a recession was imminent. And everyone was wrong. And, you know, we, we heard it everywhere we turned. And then suddenly a recession wasn't imminent. Is there going to be a recession? I am the last guy to know. There might be. I, you want to think the confluence of events. You want to think that the, you know, we know there's deflation in certain things, but we also know, I know here in California, that as gas prices are getting close to $7 a gallon for the premium gas buy, that's an issue. We know that we know what we see when we go out to restaurants. I know what I, I know what I know from talking to folks who are engaged in white tablecloth restaurants and what they've been seeing, which is very interesting because it's coming from the top down where people are finally saying no mas. We know what it's like just going out to eat and just doing things. Or let me put this, let me put it to you because this is all inflationary that I'm talking. I did a report the other day on a company called Bolero. It's a roll up of bowling alleys. And I hadn't paid attention to bowling in years and years. And I started paying attention to this. And someone tweets me and goes, oh, yeah, if my family of four were in Overland, Texas, you know, four of us for two hours, it was, you know, we wanted to reserve a lane. It was $176. So I checked here in San Diego. Oh, of course, just nearly $200 for a family of four. The investigal bowling. No wonder the company is starting to have problems because there's resistance as people have alternatives and look for alternatives, perhaps cheaper alternatives for things to do either by themselves, with their friends, or with their families. So where are things? I thought the market after the crack two years ago, I expected a ringing out. I expected a washout, right? And it never happened. Not the way you would have expected it. It didn't. You didn't have a chance to breathe. And before you knew it, the market was back to its old tricks. People were out to, up to their own, you know, up to, oh my gosh, this steam and that steam and just forgetting the lessons they learned, looking for yet another savior that they could, you know, really just fool everybody with and prove how simple the market really is or they thought it was. And here we are, you know, you know, two years later, a year and a half later, and, you know, we're still seeing some of the same shenanigans. Even though now the one interesting aspect, I, two weeks ago, we thought the IPO window was opening. And guess what? It isn't because a few came out that were really dogs and maybe people have come to their senses. So the real question is, you know, with rates at five and a half percent, do I put my money into a stock or do I put my money into a three month T-bill? And we know what a lot of people are doing. That said, if I talk my book, I think there's still some great opportunities out here. That said, let me throw something else at you, Michael. So I put up something the other day. It was a status report on my red flags alert. Okay. These are companies that I flagged that in theory over the next 12 months should underperform the market. You look at the status report on these, I don't know if it was a dozen companies or whatever, they're down 10%, 20%, 30%, 50%. And 
I looked at that list and I like I laughed and I said, oh my gosh, the market's about ready to boomerang. It's going to go straight up because in my career, every time I've looked smart on, on the bear side, it's literally been the trigger for things to get better. That said, this time, you know, is this time different? I don't know. That's a long-winded way of saying I have no idea what's going to happen. By the way, I appreciate the honesty because I have no idea either. I mean, that's why, we, that's why I always frame things in terms of conditions, right? It, it Probabilities, everyone gets focused on the mile marker, but you have to know it's reading to slow down. And to your point, there have been a lot of stocks that have been in, you know, actually fairly deep bear markets this year. No, there have been stocks that have been in deep bear markets, but then some of those stocks became fantastic opportunities. Look, I write about some of them on in my, in my behind the paywall newsletters, and we've had some fantastic wins. We've had some losers too, right? That I think will be great opportunities in the future. But we've had some fantastic wins, both small cap and large cap. We have this company, we have this company we wrote about, Sterling Infrastructure. This is about four months ago, five months ago. You've never heard of Sterling Infrastructure. They build things. They're part of building, you know, roads and data centers and things like that. It stocks up 130, 140% since we wrote about it. Gosh, I'd never heard of the company until we started researching it. There are opportunities out there and there will always be opportunities out there. And that's the thing I learned. And that's the issue here when we talk about, you know, I wrote this piece and you sort of tagged your, your today's segment on the piece, you know, that it's so easy to lose money. You know, the piece I wrote was step right up, folks, and lose money. But the, the flip side is, yes, it's very easy to lose money. But in my world where I come from and the kind of people I speak with and that I've come to really respect is they're not the crowd that the fast money folks want to talk about. And I don't want to bore anyone here with it because it's going to really sound so simple that it's going to, you know, it'll turn some people off. But the the folks out there that are able to wear blinders, sometimes I say, if you could just go away, you have no television on, you're not looking at social media and you just go about your life and you don't get freaked out by things. How are those type of people performing relative to everybody else, all of us? Because everybody listening, me included, you, Michael, we're all there transfixed every day, everything that's going on in the markets. But there's this whole other crowd of people who buy compounders, right? That's what they've been doing. You can roll your eyes at it. Go, those people. And yet those are the ones that ultimately are laughing um, all the way to the bank. They're just doing it more consistently, slower. They don't tend to get caught up in all the ruckus and every twist and turn. And what is the market going to collapse here? Is it going to collapse there? And they just go about buying good stocks. There's an example of a company I wrote about. It's called Brown & Brown. It's, insurance, it's an insurance brokerage company. And I wrote about this thing, I don't know, a year ago. No sooner did we recommend it than the stock, the company came out with some news that wasn't that good. This has been a fantastic company over, over decades. But it's not a company that's ever going to make headlines. Anyone's ever going to sort of just, you know, start chatting about it at some party. It's an insurance brokerage company, right? Family dominated, family owned for the most part. You know, they control the stock. and. Stock fell, I don't know if it fell 50% after <laughs> that thing has just come back with a gusto because it was just kind of a blip in the history of the company. And so when we talk about stocks and bear markets, I think about it as where is the opera from the, the, the that other side of me? I think about it from, okay, where's the opportunity with those stocks? And that's, uh, I think that's the way you have to think about it unless, unless you're a trader. And I know there are a bunch of traders listening to this. 
And I think that's the, I think that's what I've come to respect over the years because you raise your red flags about stocks to avoid because that's what I look for. And I call it stock avoidance. These are not stocks to short. If you want to short them, have fun, good luck, you know, get your options and play it that way, whatever you want to do. But I think it's more important to, to identify stocks to avoid while at the same time trying to figure out what stocks you can own uh, for a longer period of time. And by the way, you, you perfectly encapsulated my whole thing I've been hitting on multiple times around uh, NVIDIA and the AI mania. It's mm-hmm. not that I'm saying to short NVIDIA, as I've said many times, because shorting really doesn't work over any systematic back tests. But avoiding it is one way you can just, you know, be bearish. You still play the game. When- exactly. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. Game of the extreme. I think it's myth by a lot of people. The other part of this also, I think, is that you eloquently said is, you know, the reality is most people that are not systematic, they, they do lose money, right? Because, you know, that point about it's never been easier to lose money, that's really particularly true in the short term when you're a discretionary trader, right? I mean, there's all kinds of studies that prove that out. But if you're a long-term investor, it's a lot uh, harder to not win, right, than it is to lose on the short term. Yeah, I think that, well, that's how, I think that's how different people are wired and that's what attracts them to the markets. But on this issue of, you know, I just want to go back on this issue of stock avoidance because it, it's so lost in the noise. It, it's so lost in the noise. You know, it's the old Warren Buffett line about, you know, what's rule number one, don't lose money, rule number two, you know, don't forget rule number one. And, you know, I mean, I was, I have a friend who has been actively engaged for years on the short side and no longer is engaged on the short side. And we had this discussion about shorting and the wisdom of shorting. And obviously many people short. I know people who don't have to short who short because they love it. It's who they are. It's tied into what they love doing. So it's part of, it's part of what they do. I have one friend who used to be a short seller. You'll like this, Michael. He's long NVIDIA. So he disagrees with you, but he's there for a long period of time. And I think that, and that's the beauty of this, right? We all have different time frames, and we all, all have different opinions because neither you nor I can tell whether NVIDIA is setting up to be the next Cisco, right? We'll look back at it years from now and we'll say, oh, remember when, remember NVIDIA? Or whether it's, whether it's something. And, and that gets to something else. I, I, I just, I'm sorry to just keep going on because there's so many things I haven't talked I sit here by myself and I haven't talked to anyone in a long time. So I have a lot to, a lot to say. I, on this issue of AI, right now, everybody's flocking. They're still flocking to AI. If you had told me in February that we'd be still in an AI boom of the herd wanting to find the next AI play, I don't thought it would have burned itself out by now. You know, the way these things tend to go, it would have burned itself out. But it's still a very popular investment theme, especially with the retail investors. Yet, I would argue one of the greatest stories not told that nobody cares about and actually has really good potential upside is 
And, and again, please don't roll your eyes when I say this. It's reassuring. It's the rebirth of America, right? It's the rebirth of it's what's going on in small town America all over. And it really is because you continue to see plants being built, people coming back. They're not coming back in mass. I mean, we're still, stuff's going to be built all over the world for my lifetime, certainly. But there's a broad gravitation back here or people just building things here. It's totally not being discussed. Now, you can see it in sterling infrastructure because they're part of that process. But for many, it's simply, it's not a story. I don't see anyone talking about that story. And I think it's just because it's not exciting, even though it plays into every investment theme out there from AI to, you know, automation, broader automation and infrastructure, the bigger infrastructure build, which itself, you know, I, again, I think people discount because it's not quote unquote exciting. Yet I think that's where the ultimately the long-term money is made. But again, I wouldn't say, I'm only partially talking my book on that. I'm just talking what I've learned over the years and as I've watched it. And the, the best chart I love to look at is Berkshire, is Berkshire and the NASDAQ converging right as the market was about to collapse and then Berkshire going past, past the NASDAQ. Uh, you know, it was the slow money and it won at a certain point in time there. Let's get uh, some of the audience. Again, if anybody wants to come up and ask questions, click that bottom left mic request button. The question would then say, somebody would say, what's the time horizon? And what is your time horizon for a true compounder? And has the story changed and has the business changed? Because I talk to guys who have history. Look, I'm not a historic compounder, right? It's something I look for in the kind of names we we put in the model portfolio, model portfolios in my two empire newsletters. But especially on one of them, Empire Real Wealth, which which is bigger cap names. But when I talk to the guys who have just sat there quietly owning these names and I say, when do you sell? And they say the same thing. They say, yeah. sell if something in the business has changed. The story has changed. We don't like it anymore. I don't hear them talking about selling because the stock has gotten too expensive. I went back. I added Costco to the portfolio six, seven months ago. An obvious company, right? And I went back and I decided to go back five, six, seven years, 10 years, as long as I could find. What were people saying about Costco as an expensive company? It was expensive all the way up. And, and that's something I found on many of them. But again, I think that's a, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you'd get different answers to that question depending on somebody's risk tolerance and their own, their own basic investment philosophy. Yeah, and there is no one size fits all with any of this, right? But everybody wants there to be because everybody wants somebody to tell them what to do and what the right thing to do. And that's, I think, what differentiates really great investors from the rest of us, because they have that innate feeling themselves. And even then they make mistakes or they surprise themselves one way or the other. This thing you wrote in on your Substack, which I think is a, a very well phrased sentence. He said, I also strongly believe knowing what can go wrong is as important as knowing what can go right. And I think this is the challenge for anybody that is a long only trader and does have a bullish bias, because the reality is you probably should have a bullish bias. I mean, markets do tend to go up more often than they go down in terms of just frequency of days and you know, longer term trends. But how do you get to focus on what can go wrong with a company? Because the reality is, you've probably seen these studies, right? The moment you buy something, you become more convinced that your thesis is right. There's a little bit of a self-confirmation bias just from the action of buying a position. Well, unless you're wired the way I am, which is at that moment, I, just, I start fretting. You know, it, I think it's, you know, years, many years ago, I interviewed the then 
president or CEO of, he was the president of, of Coca-Cola when it was just the wind was at its back. His name was Don Keogh. And he was a, I was working in Chicago, I think the Chicago Tribune at the time. And he was a salesman. And I looked in and I said, man, everything you guys are doing is just going so well. I think this was right before they launched the new Coke, which absolutely was a devastating mistake. And his, his answer to, or his comment to me is something, you know, just, is resonating with me forever. And that was, I'm always looking over my shoulder. And he was smart enough to always be concerned about what could go wrong. And I think there's this fine line between being overly concerned and then being, you know, blindly bullish. I have the blindly bullish part is how most investors are wired. They're wired to just believe everything and then get into groupthink and you know, confirmation bias, because that's that that we're all human beings and we want people to agree with us and it makes us feel better and it makes us feel easier. I remember when I was doing this short research, what surprised me was as a journalist by background, I loved to find ideas early, which and I would look for low short interest names. But as it turned out, the end market didn't seem to get as excited about those as they would about a higher short interest name because the studies had shown that, you know, higher short interest names on the short side did better. And so, you know, I, the number of people who would say to us, why aren't you guys doing work on Tesla? And I'd look at them and say, well, there's nothing to add on Tesla. You know, people are paying us good money to find something of value. And there was no value in that. But that's the way people are wired. And I think when it comes to, you know, trying to think about what could go wrong, I think that also is to how you're wired in the sense that I, I would argue that me having spent most of my professional career around bearishly inclined people hurt me personally as, as an investor without question. Because when you're around, it, I can't tell you the number of times I was ready to buy, you know, and I could only buy mutual funds or, you know, indexes, right? That's all I could do as a journalist. And I'd be on the phone with one of my sources who was so compelling about what was about to go wrong. And when, you know, when you just are shrouded in such a bare sentiment, it actually has impact. And I think it actually hurt me because as I sit, as I sit here and I do an audit of my life and my career, and I go back and I see what I did right, and I see what I did wrong, and I see what I wish maybe I could have and should have done, you know, I realized that, you know, the mistake I made was being almost overly bearish. That said, I don't think you could have written what I wrote by saying one thing and writing another. And I think that's, you know, I think if there was anything I did in my career, there was an authenticity, authenticity to what I did because I believed it. And I always felt horrible if I was going to go opposite of what I would write or say. So I walked the walk and talked the talk but I also think you can be overly bearish and overly concerned. Now I say that knowing like right now, is this the moment when I say this? <laughs> and I will regret it, regret even suggesting maybe things get too bearish because you're all, we're all sitting here. We've been here for decades now waiting for the bottom to really fall out. I was thinking, I was listening to, there's this podcast I really love on the tape. It's with, it's with Guy Adami, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. These are three really great. I personally like these guys and I like the podcast. I've been on the podcast. I like it because they're very rational. They're bearishly inclined, but they're also, they're realistic about 
the way things can go. And, you know, I listen to it and I hear them sometimes and I go, oh, my God, I can't buy another thing. And yet, if you listen closely, you'll see that they're picking up what they believe to be bargains, but they make such a strong case for what could go wrong in the market right here, right now. So, you know, it's something I think about all the time. I think when I talk to people, but when I talk to people who are more bullishly inclined, I think some of them, you know, if they're long-term oriented, they just sort of take it with a grain. And I think the one thing I've learned in my own investing career, when I, once I was able to invest and dove in, when I say invest in stocks, because I really like stocks. So invest in individual stocks and dove in and learned immediately what my risk tolerance was, because it's one thing to write about it. It's another thing to do it. And I felt, part of me felt it was so horrible that I couldn't have invested in individual companies as a journalist because it would have made me a better stocks journalist. On the other hand, of course, you're always fighting the the concern that you're on the take and that you're front running and all that kind of stuff. So you can't do it. Can't even do it at the newsletters on my end right now for that very reason. Can't own those specific stocks. So, you know, you learn once I dove in and I learned, you know, various things about me as an investor, as opposed to someone writing about investing, it was quite an awakening. And I realized that the one thing I learned was to sort of put on blinders about every negative twist and turn. Now, this is for the stocks I owned. And I very much learned that I wanted very little speculative in my portfolio. It's just who I was. And I acknowledged that. It was hard to acknowledge because that made me fight the human nature aspect of what's inside of me. Because we're in the end, we all have that desire. We all hear that story. We all, you know, hear some compelling idea of a very small company that we want to hop on. And that's where I've made my biggest mistakes, without question. And that will never happen again, he said famously. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Herbier on X and also check out his Substack. If you will come up and ask questions, click that bottom left microquest button. And as always, this will be in a podcast under Lee Lag Live on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple. Speaking of Tesla, and by the way, I agree with you on so much of what you said, I mean, it's the media, especially now, I think is like, it, it's a reflection of market cap weighted averages, right? It's the focus on just a select number of stocks. While there's so many stories going on, so many great companies, so many interesting industry trends that are shaping and they don't get any play because the media primarily is giving the people what they want. And what they want is what's driving the market cap weighted averages, which again, is a small number of stocks, which includes Tesla. You're better at this than I am because you're just smarter than I am. I think that, you know, look, I'm a guy who paid 19% for a home equity loan to put a roof on my house in 19, I don't know, 1980, 1981, whatever that year was, and lived through that. I don't know. All I, what I know is when you talked about QE, the role QE played in breaking the markets, it's a role it played in market structure and the market structure we see today because of all the other things other folks have talked about, like just the dynamics of the structure of the market. I do not know, man, I sit here and I hope your thoughts are wrong, right? I hope what you're saying and your the logic behind your saying, what you're saying is wrong. And I don't know if it's wrong. I just say that just because, you know, of just life in general, right? But we see these elements of things going on that you can't help but Watch again. We got the wages on one side. We see the union. You know, this union movement is a really big deal. 
right? And we don't, I don't know how that's going to go. And, you know, Musk had that comment about, he had some comment about the unions are going to drive G, GM and Ford into bankruptcy. And, you know, may, maybe he's got something there because I will say this, because I would argue, and I, I've thought about writing about something like this, and I just don't know that I want to get into the, go into that battle. You know, if you really want to trace back the unions and you trace back the good that the unions have done and then how far they pushed it. And then that led to, you know, everybody moving stuff offshore to lower their costs. And now that's coming back to haunt everybody. So I don't know how this is all going to shake out given the environment we're in. I I mean, you raise great points, Gordon. I'm not going to sit here and say I have some great philosophical thought that is going to, you know, be resounding. So that's a long-winded way of saying. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Maybe I would add, I mean, if you structured, be structurally bearish is, I think, challenging. But, you know, could you be, and I've made this argument before, could you be in a lost decade? Sure. I mean, that's happened with a lot of European averages. It's happened with the U.S. as well in the past. So, you know, for all we know, you only know with hindsight, right? But you could be in a lost decade, in which case, you know, maybe the, the, the structural bearish is more around sort of the perspective of, you know, gains, right, on a, on a go-forward basis, broadly. But Michael, can't you argue, you know, when you say structural loss decade, uh, couldn't you argue that things are so different today? You know, when I see people talking about, you know, how the market is, you know, trying to compare this to past markets, right? Trying to compare this, say, to the dot-com boom. Trying to compare this even to 2008 when quantitative easing back then, when we had irrational exuberance and all the stuff back then. Isn't that one big difference? that we all acknowledge, we all see, it's just the darn market structure. It's just so different. The globalization, even add in, I'd add in social media, the changes between 2008, when I first went on, got on Twitter, and today, not just Twitter, but social media and the impact of that on algorithms and so many different elements of this have made it so different. And I say that knowing that you know, we could have probably said the same thing 10 years ago, and we could have probably said the same thing 20 years ago. It's just accelerated and is far more complicated today than it was. So market structure possibly changing to the point that really you need to break things to fix things, right? And then that creates the lost decade or lost decades you're talking about, perhaps. Sorry to interrupt. I just, no, that, just the part I've had a lot. What I will say, though, you know, so, so, so no discredit. I guess where I'd push back is kind of an interesting just thought experiment is maybe it's not so much from that perspective, but more from the standpoint of it becomes more deceptive in terms of how the lost decade takes place. So I put a piece on the lead lag report. If you look at the AOM ETF, which is an iShares moderate allocation, basically 60-40, right? AOM as a 60-40 proxy over the last five years is up pretty much the exact same as CPI, as inflation. So for five years, a 60-40 portfolio on a real return basis has got, gotten you nothing, right? Now, so I said, you know, we're five years into a lost decade. Now, a large part of that's obviously because of the bond side, right, with the dislocation of the sell-off. But the point is that 
I do wonder if we're in a structural age of higher inflation, if it means that we are structurally going to get more deceived by money illusion, right? Where it's nominal returns when in reality on a real after inflation adjusted basis, it's actually far worse. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's like, yeah, I, I, I guess I, you make it may all. Here's my issue here. And I sit here as a guy as a part of my who spent part of my career as an observer and then trying to interpret what I was observing. Everything I hear from so many people makes a lot of sense or makes no sense, right? So you're laying out a great argument. And as a commentator, you're supposed to sit here and everybody wants you to have some strong opinion on what people say. And I sit here, I go, yeah, it makes sense, maybe. And I don't mean to be, you know, you know, trying to dumb it down. I'm just trying to say that I hear all of this and I just don't know. No, I agree. I'm, I'm laughing. I'm a mute, but I'm like, you know, because I agree with you. Of course, everybody knows, right? I mean, <laughs> it, but I, I think that's the point. It's like, if you're going to be an investor, you have to think about the, the range of possibilities. I, of course. Right. And, you and have I, to. Right. And, and just uh, you did, going back to McNamara, mm-hmm. like, I'd argue that the, the sheer amount of leverage in the system makes the range of outcomes more extreme than ever before. Right. Because you can make a hyper bullish argument, you can make a hyper bearish argument, you can make an argument for commodities, you can make an argument for technology. I mean, yeah, and, and it, it, we're increasing this kind of Pareto within Pareto principle world, right? Where it's just more and more concentrated, I, th- I think, in terms of what the media focuses on, what people tend to pay attention to, and then, of course, what's driving, you know, in quotes, the market. Yeah, the media, look, everyone wants to knock the media. I'm in the media. I'm still, I, I'm not formally a journalist, but I still participate in the media. And the media has to get people to stop clicking, you know, to go to another channel or clicking it off or whatever the case may be. I always joke that, if I had been, if I had been a, a columnist back in San Francisco in the days of, if today was then and people were counting clicks, stories that I wrote that sent people to prison or that really had impact never would have been written because the stocks were so small and were so out of the way that they wouldn't have gathered clicks. I'll never forget this one time. I tell the story a lot, but it's a good story because it's a reminder of how things have changed. Back in, I don't know what it was, at some point in the, when Overstock, the first Overstock story was a big story. I was at Market Watch and I, my column was on the front of the second, the front of the website every day. And I write this thing about Overstock. I'm so excited about it. And it's like, there's so much going on. And this guy, Patrick Bird, he's such a, you know, all this stuff. And there's all sorts of fighting going on and everybody's, you know, my group of people were all talking about it. And I write this thing, falls off the page. It, it disappears from the front page. And I said, why is my, why, what happened? They said, well, no one's clicking on it. That was my first realization that things had changed, that you had to really start thinking about things that as a writer, you didn't want to have to start thinking about, oh, is it going to get enough clicks? Is anyone going to read it? Oh, SEO? What is SEO? You mean, I have to, I like writing these catchy headlines. You mean, I can't write a catchy headline anymore because it's not going to get, you know, into the SEO algorithm. And that always had an effect on the media just because of the evolution, obviously, of, of the internet. And so, but it has affected the coverage. And that's why, you know, you look at some of these coverages, these smaller, these smaller cap stocks, there's, you know, who's looking at them? There's no one looking, especially for problems and for trouble. No, I think that's really interesting. And I think, look, I don't talk to managements much because if I call a company, they still look me up and they, no one wants to talk to me, even if I'm writing a positive report. And I tend to basically get what I want in the public domain because it's there. I actually find transcripts to be so valuable because you can find so much. I go through the, I, I love transcripts because it can tell me the story of if they're telling the truth or how they've changed their minds 
and it just takes scraping through them. And I, it's one of the, it's how I spend my days having the most fun. And when I'm researching a company, once I dig into that, that's where I really get there. So you're, but you want to know what managements are saying. And that's where you obviously can tell it because you go company after company, you can see it. I thought when you're going to talk about managements, you're going to talk about the quality of managements, which is a whole different issue, which I think is a fascinating issue. And which is something that I, you know, you think I think about every time I look at a company, especially if there's been a management change, I wonder who those people are. And I was talking to, I just, this week, I was talking to a group, an outfit, Paragon Intel is the name of the outfit. And I actually may do something on them where they were started by a hedge fund manager and it's a bunch of former hedge fund guys and journalists. And they put together these amazing dossiers on management teams. I mean, it's, it's really something. It's the kind of stuff you look at and you go, and they can, and from those, they can get an idea of whether this might be a good long or a good short. And I think to me, so when you mentioned management, I'm thinking, okay, what's the quality of these guys? And you're thinking, what are they saying? And I, I, so I look at it two different ways because that's the biggest stuff is, you know, did you, in my case, did I recommend a company that has crummy management? Because the biggest fear I have is that I, re- I recommend a company and that someone's going to come along and it's going to suddenly be an activist short seller's favorite name. You know, that's like a nightmare for me. And I'm, it's going to happen. It will happen just by nature of the beast. But that's what I, I hope won't happen. And so it keeps me up at night. Quality of management, can they execute? If it's a new CEO, what was their history? You know, I, I was talking to these guys the other day and they were talking about Intel and how they could tell when Gensler came in after doing the work on Gensler, what his history was, that he would not be a good person to invest with. And they went through the, you know, if I write this up, it'll be in something I write on Substack and on Empire. But it's, to me, quality of management's everything. Who's the C, the CFO? And if the CFO has come from a private company or he's come from a division of a public company, what was his history there? And when people go out and start interviewing people who worked with these guys, they give you an indication. Is it a risk taker, not risk taker? You know, that's what you want to know. That's what I want to know. And, you know, you get, I, I was researching one company and I, I had recommended it for a while and I stopped recommending it. And the CEO had been, a, and it really troubled me that the CEO earlier in his career had been at a company that I had even written about as being a quasi problematic company, right? Early, you know, 20 years ago. And then he had another job or two between there. And I wondered, did he rectify himself between here and there? Can I recommend that company? The sooner do I recommend the company that a friend calls me and he goes, well, you know, he was CEO of, you know, XYZ company. And I felt like a chump. And I thought, oh, shoot, you know, did I really let down my guard on that? And, and is he going to perform? And so that's when I talk about quality, I talk about, are they the right people in the right job? Because we see, you know, they, they get through the headhunting process, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Or if they were elevated from within, are they the best candidate and are they really good? So quality of management is, I think, critical to any company that you invest in. And that, I think, has to be part of the diligence without question. Okay, this is a great question. And all roads always lead back to Tesla. And Lord knows I'll lose my train of thought here. First of all, regarding the media, you're not going to get me to bash the media. What the media does, I was a guy sitting there on CNBC and I brought you on CNBC. Specifically, I was the first guy to bring you on CNBC. And thank you, buddy. Thank you because, so much. Because you, are so, because you are so good and willing to fight the battle. And when I see you on there today, they're still bringing, remember, that's the point. They're bringing you on to get in there and 
They're letting you speak your voice, which is very important. But when you're there and you're doing an interview with somebody, I learned this once with Mark Haynes on CNBC. I was a guest on there. I was doing something on there. I was actually, I was, I think I was working at CNBC at the time. And I decided I was going to be my brash self. And he said something and I go, oh, come on. I like did one of these like interruptions that I tend to be able to do if I want to do it. And he stopped talking to me. Mark Haynes literally was so angry the way I behaved. He stopped talking to me for days and days. He wouldn't even take my phone call because I heard he was upset at me. Finally, when I got him, when I saw him in the makeup room or wherever, he said, he was, he said, do not talk like that and act like that on my show or any show. He said, you can say with all due respect, you keep your calm. And I learned a lesson from that. And then when I went full time to CNBC, I tried to, when you're dealing with somebody, if you're going to, unless you know they're a fraud, look, I was on with the Iron, not the Iron Mountain guys, but the guys from the mineral company in, in, in Nevada once. And that guy hated, you know, I, I've been on with several people where I'd ask the tough questions and they'd give you the, they would just be so angry with you sort of on and off set. But it's hard when you're sitting there, you're going to sort of polarize yourself in a way that no one's going to talk to you. It was hard enough for me as the guy who fly, flew red flags. You know, when I had the Herbalife people in and the CEO coming in, I was going to interview him. You know, I had to be really careful in how I dealt with it because tone matters. So I don't think it, look, with Elon Musk, I remember, I'll never forget. I know exactly where I was. I was in my car in Bird Rock in San Diego when I was listening to him being interviewed many years ago by Kelly Evans. And he told a bold bold face, deceptive lie on television. I was flabbergasted. I probably tweeted it out if there was Twitter at the time, right? Did something. You can't, we, we know, we know there are these people increasingly that take liberties and you try to call them out on it to some extent. And I mean, I, I mean, it gets to this whole other issue. And that issue is there are so many of these CEOs who are so non-traditional and you want to just say their disaster is ready to happen, but yet the businesses go on. So here's the question. What do you do with a Tesla? I'll never forget sitting here in San Diego driving around in every other car. This is years ago. Now it's more than every other car are Tesla. And how do you foot, and I'm a guy, I'm not a Musk fan at all. How do you foot the business that Tesla built with the subsidies, granted, with the subsidies, with the brand, creating the infrastructure, blah, 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 but still creating whatever that business has become with what you and I and others might say is this irrational deceptive, a lot of deceptive commentary that, you know, I would argue is, you know, Trump-esque in just sort of his view of the truth. We, you know, we know from everything that's been written about him and the way he operates that he says things that aren't necessarily correct. So I don't know how you foot that today with the business. I mean, you could argue, I could look at Tesla. I had this discussion with a friend the other day. We're talking about Tesla and we're talking about how Tesla actually may win from the perspective of being in the right place at the right time with string inverters in a world where you have to start putting batteries in with your, with your solar installation because of the changes in the cap rates and every, you know, everything in, in California, that actually they may be sitting there with a product that ends up winning just because it's cheaper 
than regular oil inverters. And, you know, when it comes to batteries and that, you and I can talk about that offline, but there are, there's, there are people say, hey, you know, this is going to be a tailwind for their business that people aren't even talking about. So I don't know. You raise great questions, but I think when you're in the media, you're not going to sit there and just be nasty and bash people. You'll never survive. There are people I think who ask, you know, you ask about being at the Fed. I'm sure if you're a Fed reporter, you want to get, you know, you can ask questions that are pointed, you know, but I don't know that you can be as tough as you would be if you were in that seat. There are people who do ask tough questions. You can see them, whether it's David uh, Faber or others on, on air who are asking very tough questions, just respectfully, so they're not necessarily in their face the same way. I just think human nature follows whatever seems to be successful. And at that point, they want to hop on the next EV the same way they want to hop on the next AI. That's what it really amounts to. And you could ask all the questions you want, and you could raise all the red flags you want. And as a guy who's raised red flags, the stocks will still go up if whatever the powers that be that caused them to go up, caused them to go up, that have absolutely nothing to do with the fundamentals of that business. That's a good place, by the way, to wrap this space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Herb Greenberg. And then, Herb, what's the what's the link on the Substack? What's the URL? Just go to HerbGreenberg.com. It'll get you there. Yeah, HerbGreenberg.substack.com. Okay, I just saw it myself. Everybody, please make sure you follow Herb. Great discussion. Hopefully, I will see you all soon. Thank you, Herb. Appreciate it. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.